Our presenter for this afternoon, Professor Siva Vadianathan, who is a, an associate professor of uh, culture and communication, assistant, assistant professor of uh, culture and communications at NYU, whose PhD is in American studies. And he'll be talking uh, with us this afternoon based upon his paper, Between Pragmatism and Anarchism, the American Copyright Revolt Since 1998. As he says, I think in his abstract, this is a paper about the struggle about who gets to generate the soundtracks of American life in the 21st century. I think maybe we could amend that to soundtracks of life in the 21st century, given that we have such an international audience. But we very much look forward to hearing your presentation. And uh, welcome to the podium. Thank you. I was, uh, I was given this charge some months ago um, to try to make an account of the changes in American copyright since 1998. And uh, I. When I first got the, the email from Kerry inviting me to do this, I, I thought, well, no problem. Um, you know, I had, I had managed to synthesize 300 years of copyright in about 300 pages uh, in my first book. So, you know, of course I could do five or six years of copyright in what was supposed to be 20 to 30 pages. And I'll apologize right now for laying 52 pages on you. Um, and I have to say, I left out a lot of stuff that I wanted to put in. Um, uh, one of the reasons that it kept growing is that I had trouble determining some sort of thematic core, some sort of way of telling the story beyond a catalog. Because this has been an amazing five or six years. Uh, it's been five or six years filled with uh, a couple of good days like today where we get to celebrate um, uh, some, uh, some good defense and occasionally some good offense uh, on behalf of uh, on behalf of the good fight, the public interest in, in copyright and technology policy, uh, and, and a lot of frustrating days, a lot of days when we, uh, you know, we, we wish that we had made this argument, or we wish that so-and-so had listened to this point, uh, or we wished we had been allowed in this room where all these important decisions were made. Uh, so uh, as I look back on five or six years, um, I, I tried to sort of filter out how I felt about it, how I actually can judge where we stand and how we got here. Um, and of course, uh, two things I did not know when I was writing this paper, one that the broadcast flag case would go this way. Uh, and secondly, of course, none of us know how the Grokster case is going to go. Uh, and so much of the tone of this account would have to reflect those two decisions. But I also made the choice that I didn't want to go case to case to case to case uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one. It's boring. Uh, and, and secondly, there are people far better trained than I am to do that sort of analysis. Uh, and the legal literature is full of articles that do take account of uh, the, the plethora of cases in the last five or six years that, um, that really can map a very important story in both the expansion and contraction of the public's voice and rights in these matters. Uh, so I, I wanted to get a beginning of a story going. Uh, what I sense as uh, widespread public fascination and frustration. Now, there's no way I can measure fascination and frustration beyond some very crude methods. Uh, uh, the number of times that copyright pops up in newspaper articles. Now, as you can imagine, you can't really do a Lexis search for the word copyright because in every article that's ever appeared on that Lexus. But, um, but you, can, you can actually search fair use. Um, and I have, uh, I didn't include it in this paper, and I should have, I have actually traced out 
the, uh, the frequency of, of the phrase fair use popping up in American newspapers. Um, and uh, as you would expect, uh, there weren't a lot of stories about fair use uh, before the year 2000. They're really, it was, it's, it's, it's like in the teens all the way back through the 80s with the exception of uh, whatever year the Salinger case was settled. I think that was like 82 or 83. The J.D. Salinger um, uh, case was the was one time when fair use was was in the news. Uh, the Nation case as well. But you know the, those sort of little little blips in the in the graph. But you know starting in 2000, fair use is all over the newspapers uh, as a as a stand-in for people writing about how copyright. So that's one way to say that there's fascination and and for sure, well, frustration is easy to measure by the 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 very fact that there are so many thousands of people now. Um, writing $3,000 checks to the Recording Industry Association of America, and they can't be happy about this, right? There, there are now thousands of Americans frustrated that they're $3,000 poor for one reason or another. A lot of them don't understand it. Uh, last uh, June, I was invited to give a, uh, a little presentation at Barnes & Noble in Skokie, Illinois, um, which isn't my usual venue. It's, you know, it's a, it's a nice suburb. It's an established old suburb, but it's not like a university, Barnes & Noble. It's not... I didn't know why I was invited, and, and I got there, and there were really only like four people there, and three of them were my former students from Wisconsin who happened to be librarians <laughs> in the area. Uh, but you know, I did my spiel, and a couple of people walked up and and got involved in the conversation. It wasn't you know, it wasn't the best book, book story in the world. And I tried to figure out why in the world they would invite you. And when it was over, the woman who uh, organizes the the discussions at the Barnes and Noble said that her son had been cited by the RIA and she had just written a $3,000 check and she was really angry at them and wanted to figure out more about it so she wanted to <laughs> invite me to talk about it. So um, I don't think it's out of line to say that there is widespread fascination and frustration. Well, how did we get to this point? Now, a couple other things I've been thinking about. Um, operating systems. I've been thinking about whether I want to do a clean reinstall and put Tiger OS X on my, on my Mac, right? And why would I do that? Well, there's really only one thing that is better about Tiger than what I have now, which I forget which big cat I have now. Um, but that is that there is some really powerful indexing functions in Tiger. You know, you can type in a keyword and zip all the PDFs and all the Word files and all the, you know, all the metadata that hits that, that keyword will pop up so much better than the current search function on Macs. Um, I had heard a presentation from uh, the, one of the uh, public, uh, oh, the, the head of research at Google actually uh, came, uh, came to New York a few, few months ago and uh, sort of rolling out, explaining her, their new initiatives and what's really cool. And the one that she was most excited about in recent years and the one that she sees the most consumer reaction to is Google Desktop. Uh, so it is all about, it is, people are really into being able to make sense of this huge pile of information in their lives. Um, in other words, in a very crude, vulgar, untrained way, we are all librarians now. You know, we're all playing librarians. Doesn't mean we're trained as librarians, doesn't mean we're good at being librarians, but it means that at some point in our life, a good portion of our day is spent doing things not unlike what librarians do, organizing information, filtering information, uh, deciding the, the value, relative value of information um, uh, and, and making sure that we can retrieve what we spent good money on, right? The, an amazing amount of our day is now spent on that. Uh, and this is, that's why people are interested in things like Tiger and Google Desktop. Um, <clears throat> so I, I also started thinking, so I, that's, that's been one of, my, one of my observations. But then I was also thinking about the fact that, you know, five years ago, um, many of the people in this room uh, started 
talking about these sorts of things. Uh, there, one particular meeting, uh, the first one I was invited to, and so it struck me very strongly, uh, ALA, um, uh, Carrie and Rick brought us all together uh, at the Y River um, uh, 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 plantation, um, even though they don't call it a plantation anymore, uh, to talk about how we can start fighting back against what had just happened in Congress and the courts, how we can actually mobilize librarians and the public. And, and the big question on everybody's mind is how can we distill a rhetoric that can make a difference? that can actually convince people that this really complicated, arcane, mushy subject that, you know, you get 100 people in a room and they can't all decide what the parameters of fair use are. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's really hard to translate to the public, um, to which I say, you know, well, we actually did a really good job in the last five years. We've, we've, we've come close to being able to give the pithy story about why this all matters and what's at stake and what our relationship is with the copyright system. We're not quite perfectly there. We don't have the, the uh, theft, theft, theft bumper sticker stuff that the RIA and the MPA have yet, but we have a couple of good stories. We've got a bunch of uh, really scary anecdotes. We've got some pithy arguments that we're really uh, sharpening and honing right now. Um, and so that, that feels pretty good. Um, and uh, I think we are um, on the verge of connecting with this widespread dissatisfaction and fascination. And for that, Thank you, RIAA, for suing so many thousands of people and making people worried about this sort of thing. Now, um, how did we get to this point that so many millions of Americans are concerned? And by the way, I'm, I'm explicitly talking about Americans here because that was my charge in the paper. Um, and it's something I've tried to get away from in the last couple of years. I've, I've tried to not simply tell the American story. Um, uh, it's been sort of one of my... Uh, uh, I actually have a... You, you might love this, Rick. I, I have a really a scathing review of Pat Choate's book in, in American Scholar this, this spring. Uh, and in it, I make one of the cases that we've got to get to the point where you know, we've got all these big pile of powerful books on the free culture side of copyright and not one is written by a non-American. Actually, one is. Uh, Rosemary Coombs' book uh, is written by a Canadian. So that's like the one I can think of that is making it, is, you know, being cited in the public and newspaper reporters are reading. You know, we've got to expand that. But nonetheless, I'm going to talk about America today. So how did we get to the point that information access and organization is the concern of a good number, if not the majority of Americans? Um, thanks. Um, well, let's go back 100 years. Uh, which seems to be easier, it's easier for me to go back 100 years than five, as you can tell from <laughs> what I offered you. Um, the, the end of the Victorian era, the beginning, of the middle of the Edwardian era, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, the ideal for elite Americans is the parlor, right? To have a parlor, to have a piano, and to have books. That's a sign of status. And this is, this is, this is sort of this, this mystical place. If you can get to the point in your life where you have a parlor, you've made it. You can entertain, you can have a cultural life. You can be a cultural citizen and more than just a worker in a machine. Um, and, and it's important to realize that while this is a, a strong part of our sort of, you know, imaginary early 20th century or late 19th century, it was a rare thing for Americans. Very few Americans lived the parlor life. Very few had pianos and books. Um, it's safe to say that most Americans through the 19th century had you know, two books, the Bible and Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, or south of the Mason-Dixon line, the Bible. Um, and, and, and it was also important to remember that Uncle Tom's Cabin was actually widely distributed serially. It wasn't really, um, it was a big hit bound, but after it became a big hit serially. Um, uh, 
And for this, I, I want you to think back to what I think is the most important American play of the 20th century, The Glass Menagerie, um, Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie. Um, to me, The Glass Menagerie uh, lays out the psychological and spiritual costs of modernity and urbanization, the real serious tensions that are occurring in family life and in, in daily life in America, set in a very small St. Louis apartment, a sparse the brownish beige, I mean, I don't know which stage setting you've seen, but it's pretty much, you know, it's not a colorful stage setting. Um, set in the 1930s, uh, although staged in 1944, um, it's important to remember that Amanda Wingfield's apartment in this play has no books, no books at all. Uh, on her shelves or on her walls are two things, and you're supposed to pay attention to these two things. One is the photograph of the husband who left her, and the other is, of course, the glass menagerie, which occupies shelf space. Um, there is no parlor, but in her dream, she has a parlor. Amanda Wingfield uh, is a, uh, a Southern belle who didn't quite make it to, to bellhood. Um, she's a Southern belle in her mind. She wishes she lived the parlor life. She imagines it in her imagination, in her made-up memories. She lives the parlor life, but you can see from her life right now, she's lucky she has the fire escape right outside her window. Now, her son, Tom, of course doesn't yearn for the parlor life, but he yearns for the literary life. He learns for the life of books. He yearns for the life of books. He, he wants to be a poet. We have no way of knowing whether he actually could be a poet. Uh, and uh, one of the times that his mother really lashes out at him is when she says, you know, you've been reading that damn dirty book uh, by Mr. Lawrence, that Mr. Lawrence, right? This is when, this is when Tom really gets, so, you know, books are not a central part in this life, but they're clearly part of the yearning, the wanting. Now, this is, a, this is all occurring at a time when books are becoming a symbol of status throughout America. Right? The 1930s is a, is a time at which it's clear that you don't have to have a parlor to have a library. A lot of things have changed since the, since the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, subscription services have been uh, selling great work collections, huge collections of the best works of, you know, all the, the works of, of Hardy or Dickens or Twain. Um, in fact, Twain uh, gave up fighting American pirates uh, by signing up with Harper Brothers to distribute his collected works at the end of his life um, and uh, sort of just saying, okay, I got to go with the pirates. I can't fight them anymore. Um, and so all of these pirate publishing companies are producing books not to be read but to be displayed. Uh, and nonetheless, it becomes really important through the 1930s for Americans of, uh, of all levels to have some books and increasingly the right books. Uh, in the 1930s, Random House figures out this very notion and realizes that they can actually generate a whole lot of anxiety in the American public by convincing them that they don't have the right books and that they could have the right books and that Random House will deliver the right books. Uh, and so they start marketing modernism. They start marketing and selling books that no one is going to finish, like Ulysses. Right? Raise your hand if you actually finished Ulysses. Oh, see, I'm so glad you're so honest, right? I actually had to read in grad school, but um, all right. So, uh, but Random House actually in the 1930s was running magazine ads uh, that covered two pages, and they were titled How to Read James Joyce's Great Novel Ulysses. And it was sort of like a, a diagram, like a, um, uh, a flow chart for what's going on in Ulysses, so you can refer to it as you read. Uh, and it was a neat thing. It's a neat, it's a neat way of saying, look, you can buy Ulysses, you can have it, display it, and talk about it without actually having re read it. <laughs> Wonderful idea. Uh, and very successful. Ulysses, was, after, once it got past the court challenges, it was a big success. So it became really important 
through the 1930s and 40s to have the right books. Of course, we're seeing the rise during this time of book clubs, Book of the Month Club, for instance, and actual book clubs where people are discussing books, which have their roots in the 19th century as well, but really start proliferating in the 30s and 40s, especially among women readers. Um, 1950s, we see the rise of the modern library. Now everybody can afford quality hardbacks, especially uh, public domain works, and the trade quality paperback, which means you can now have stuff that's just been published in in a format you can afford and it's not going to disintegrate on you. Uh, huge uh, move in the publishing world. Again, filling Americans' lives with books. So you can see this apartment that Amanda used to live in now by the 1950s starts having some books. Maybe a handful, but you know people can afford them. They're not simply instruments of the elite by mid-century. Of course, by 1960, you start getting the rise of the LP record. Uh, personal library starts taking on a new characteristic. And the books start mattering more. Every bachelor pad and every young couple starter home in the new frontier is likely to have Mailer's Naked and the Dead, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, maybe Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique, uh, and certainly Dave Brubeck's Take Five. If you didn't have Dave Brubeck's Take Five in the, in the 60s, it was like not having Fleetwood Mac's Rumors in the 70s. You just really had no business uh, being a, a sentient American at that point. Um, so... By the 1970s, we see some technological revolutions that are, that are impossible to ignore. Although, as I said in the paper, amazingly understudied. The cassette revolution. I spent way too much time in the last couple of years trying to make sense of the MP3 revolution, and, and it occurred to me way too late that the cassette tape was really what shakes up the world, what really delivers music democratically. And it, it, all I really had to do was look at India and see how uh, popular music is still distributed on cassette cheaply. Um, and that's how it is in most of the world. And that's largely because you don't have to plug in a cassette player. You, you can actually have a battery-operated. So places in the world where electricity doesn't work, um, uh, battery-operated players are, are the thing. So the cassette revolution means that we can own our own musical archives. We can build our own musical archives beyond what we buy for ourselves. We can file share. We can trade peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh, and we all did in the 70s and through the 80s. Um, incidentally, in the 1970s, you start seeing in newspapers the rise of a new psychological malady. Uh, you see a couple of examples, especially coming out of this city, of the person who, who, who police find buried under piles of newspapers because you won't throw anything out. So at this point, you're seeing archiving reaching a new and, uh, and dangerous level. Right? People will not get rid of their newspapers and their books and their magazines. Um, but you also see through cassette culture and zines, which are run off on this new photocopy machine that we all suddenly have access to, uh, you see the rise of punk downtown, where I work, and hip-hop up here. Uh, and those two elements of cassette culture, again, being traded peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, create an amazing creative community. And everybody who came of age from that point on uh, has to deal with one or two or both of those phenomena. And, and the, the radical democratic effect, not only of the message of those musical forms, but the very technology of their distribution. Um, so the 70s were a time when the personal archive then starts taking on whole new dimensions. By the 1980s, you get the Walkman. The Walkman allows everybody to be shaft. Now you can walk down the street with your own, your own soundtrack, right? I have, I have a song that I walk down the street to. You know, and it, it might be, I'm not going to tell you what it is, because it's mine, right? And it's in my headphones. Um, but, you know, that's a really important moment. Now we have, re, you know, maybe it's not a good thing, but we all have very close personal media spaces um, that, we, that are portable. We can take to the gym, we can take in the car. Again, a function of the cassette and the battery, but the Walkman was a big step. The VCR, of course. 
We all know very well the effects of the VCR legally, but culturally as well. With the VCR, you're able to build your own personal video library on top of your audio library that you spent the last 10 years building, on top of your print library that your parents may have started building in the 30s, but now you have. Uh, so by this point, you have everybody has a full multimedia library in their very small apartments in St. Louis with the fire escapes. That's a really important move as well. Uh, and I, I, I've, I've been dropping this um, into a couple of my talks recently. Um, uh, when I was in college in the, in the mid-'80s, uh, I got to know a guy who was a cartoonist at the time. Um, uh, he was a cartoonist at, at the Daily Text and the, the student newspaper uh, at the University of Texas. Uh, now he's much more famous as a director, Robert Rodriguez. Uh, he grew up in San Antonio, and he had an amazing video collection. Right? He had a, an amazing library of the history of film. Uh, as a lot of people did, you know, just about everybody studied film in the 80s and 90s, collected videotapes of everything they could. Like everybody had Sizzling Kane, everybody had all the noir classics, and you can see so much of those elements of the history of film, the vocabulary of film, working into his, his, uh, uh, his, his daringly um, uh, accepting body of work. You know, he, he's, he's eclectic, he, he, he loves comic books and guns and and vampires and all kinds of fun stuff. And all of that comes through the fact that he could build a huge library for himself and tap into it. And he could do that in San Antonio, Texas. Martin Scorsese grew up on the Lower East Side with all of these movie houses that could play the greatest works of the 30s. So he had access to the library of film history by virtue of living in New York. But no one growing up in San Antonio before the 70s or 80s had access to that library in the same way until the videotape revolution. So I would say that the Betamax decision in 84 actually directly affected the creativity of the American film community. Rodriguez is not even the best example. He's just the guy I knew. He doesn't really return my calls anymore because he's too important. But, but Quentin Tarantino worked in a video store, right? This is a guy who, whose entire body of work is based on working in a video store and, and trading videos. Um, now, of course, we know the 1990s story. The PC enters our lives. A hugely powerful copying machine and storage system it uh, doesn't do much else besides copy and store. Um, uh, we start to see by the late 1990s connectivity, uh, concerns about access, practices of sharing and reuse, transformative use, derivative use happening in the living room or the office. People are mixing and mashing stuff by the by the aughts. I don't know what else to call this decade. Um, uh, you know, peer-to-peer -peer CD burners. Huge hard drives, hard drives bigger than we could ever, ever, ever fill, we say today. Um, we'll see in a couple of years. And we also see, importantly, Photoshop and Pro Tools on everybody's computer. So at this point, by 2005, millions of, Ameri of Americans get the library thing. They get the library ideology. They have to confront a lot of the same questions. Again, without a level of sophistication, without any deep history or, or a large skill set, but they have to, for some portion of their day, act kind of like librarians, and therefore they sense the threats to libraries. They sense at least the threat to the library ideology, and, and they, they've learned to love their self-programmed media spaces. That's the, that's the, the, the most um, mercenary story, uh, part of this story. Isn't it? Okay, I like my, my soundtrack. I like, I like that. That's what I want to preserve, which is really important to me. But there's more to that, because people do get into sharing. They get into building on what is around them. They get into making really cool mashups and distributing them. So I would say while this practice is unsophisticated, it is not purely consumptive, and that's important to remember. So our job 
at this point, especially after today's decision, is to link that personal concern that so many Americans have for their ability to control their own media spaces, we have to link it to larger issues. And it's not just linking it to fair use or linking it to the history of copyright. It's about linking it to media ownership questions, to trade policy, to library services, the affordability and availability of library services, to technological policy, to tech transfer issues, to H-1B visas. All of these things are connected. To cultural identity and cultural citizenship and the politics of that. To the availability of baseball statistics and, of course, the weather, which is now suddenly in danger. <clears throat> we have, if we can achieve this, if we can link all of these issues to these widespread concerns, great potential to unravel all that happened in the 1990s. The rise actually probably started with Reagan, but the rise of this proprietarian paradigm, this notion that things must be owned to be useful, that they have to have a tag on them to matter in life. We know better than that in this room. And people around us are kind of getting that idea. But it's up to us to do that full translation. So at this point, the court has said the FCC was beyond its duties, right, beyond its charge to issue the broadcast flag regulations. That's not the end of the story. Now it goes back to Congress, because they're going to ask Congress to make it the FCC's business to, uh, to, to give us the broadcast flag regulations. What happens then? At that point, it's a public battle. At that point, they need us. They need more than the lawyers who have done such great work and the law students who have done such great work with the lawyers and all this great research. They need people like us who can stand up, call congressmen, and say, this is important. We must stop it on its merits. Because what happened today in the Court of Appeals was technical, in a sense. It wasn't on the merits of the broadcast flag. The court didn't say the broadcast flag is really bad for Americans and children and other living things. The court said, this is not the FCC's business right now. Which is good. That's important. But it may not always be that way. We have to, again, distill arguments, push, make it public, make it clear, make these linkages, make it clear that all of these cool things that Americans do in the privacy of their own homes, building their personal libraries, and building the works of tomorrow out of their personal libraries, all of that is threatened by the principles embodied by the broadcast flag. And remember, just because we went in court one day doesn't mean the job gets easier, it just gets harder. Had Eldred gone the other way, had the Supreme Court said, you know what, the Copyright Term Extension Act is unconstitutional, and Congress has to pick a number of the copyright term or pick a different set, of, you know, different algorithm to determine a copyright term, then our work would have been really hard. Because then we would have had to fight it out in Congress to pick that number. That would have been, we, that's all we would have done for the last year. We would have been arguing over that one. And who knows how well we would have done on that one as well. So, uh, just want to return to the last, to the, to the point I made earlier. Um, while we do this stuff, while we talk and we think and we write, we have to keep in our minds that we should be doing so globally. We can't be so provincial and so ethnocentric as to think that the American story is the entire story. And just because we're the most powerful and wealthy nation on earth, uh, doesn't mean that our consumers are all that matters or our library patrons are all that matters. As we do this work, we should generate a sense of global information justice so that we serve a 15-year-old girl in South Africa as well as we serve a professor at New York University. Thanks.
Thank you. Thank you.